Psalm 37.7 was like our guiding scripture going into sabbatical. Remember that? Remember what it said? Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And there was kind of a metaphor that went with it. You guys remember the metaphor? I talked about how this experience is like, it's like a jar of river water. By the way, I got this from the White River. Anybody taken back by the name of that river at all? While I was making my trek down to the White River yesterday, I thought, Lord, why are you calling this white? But I talked about, right, Psalm 37, 7, is you're still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. There's an ability to let the, the sediment of life settle some. The four months was a time to, to let the sediment settle. And as the sediment settles, well, maybe it'll see more clearly into whatever it is he would like for me, for us to see more clearly into. And so this morning, and for the next two Sunday mornings in particular, I'd like to share with you some reflections of what God, by his grace and his goodness, allowed us to see a little more clearly as we attempted to honor the role of sabbatical and to be still and certainly to experience some amazing experiences. The Lily Endowment gave us a grant to go away and experience all the things. So thank you so much that God would raise up a foundation. Isn't it just like God? How amazing is this? God raises up a foundation of money and their main role, one segment of that foundation is to give money to local churches in the Indiana, the state of Indiana so their pastors can rest and renew and refresh. And we were humbled to be a recipient of that. And so if you wonder like how in the world did they get around and see and do all these things? Well, a big part of it was uh, the Lilly Endowment. And so I wanna come back this morning and begin a, re a report that I'm calling clearly. And so open up your Bibles to Romans chapter eight and we'll enter in Romans chapter eight. So one of the key experiences of our sabbatical was a three week family trip. Yes, 21 days, we flew out to Denver and we spent 21 days exploring the Great West. And um, thanks to the generosity of some good friends, we began that trip uh, a couple hours west of Denver in the mountains in a town called Silverthorne. And here was a view, kind of my morning routine. So I would get up in the mornings, because again, you're kind of on, right, Eastern time, and you're out there in the mountains. So I was really up early, and I could watch the sun rise over, and there's a little reading room, kind of a loft area in this one spot, and I would go up there and... I'd have my feet propped up with my Bible and journal and some other books, and there's the view. Kind of like Royal Run. Kind of like, <laughs> kind of like Zionsville. But anyway, it was, it was an amazing spot to begin our 21-day journey. Lily and Kaylin, our 16 and 12-year-old, have never been west of Iowa. So when I kind of laid out the vision for this 21-day great western exploration for the Simpson family, I could see in their faces a level of concern because they were thinking, you know, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa is the terrain they're used to, I-74 across there. And they're like, Dad, seriously, like 21 days of that? And I'm like, girls, trust me, trust me. That's why we're flying to Denver. And when we land there, some things are going to change, and we're going to see some different terrain. Well, when we got to this area, I learned that the most rafted section of river in North America is about an hour from where we were staying. Some of you have done it, I think. The Arkansas River, Browns Canyon. Okay, here's a picture of rafting Browns Canyon, the Arkansas River in Colorado. 300,000 people a year raft this 10-mile section of river. And when I was reading about it, I said to Kendra, I said, honey, we gotta go. 
we got to do this. You know, here we are, right? Iowans and Indiana. Boy, we got a lot of white water around here, right? So we sign up. They were all in for it, not quite sure. We kinda, I kind of pitched it to them as a borderline scenic float, you know, <laughs> with a little, you know, some bumps along the way. That's what it really was. So the guide, once we got there, the guide says, welcome to this section of river and was giving us an overview, class three, class four rapids. And he pauses, he goes, class four rapids with class five consequences. I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> Straps on a helmet on us. He puts a life jacket on me. I've never had a life jacket on me like this river guide put it on me. He took my rib cage and he squeezed it in. You know, my ribs aren't hard to find, as you know, right? So he just like pushed them in like two or three inches, and then he strapped the life jacket <gasps> like that. He's like, you're going to need this on good and snug. All righty. Wetsuit. We get down to the river. We get in the raft, and from the moment we set into the water for two straight hours, it was on. The scenic nature of the float was out the window right when we hit the raft. He's like, oars in, two forward, two right, back, left. I mean, he just kept shouting instructions, right? We each had an oar, and then he had a really large oar. The guide did, like a really big one. And I thought, well, he looked like he's going to do all the work. No, and clearly not. We were maybe 15 minutes into the trip. We came around this one cent, went through some rapids. The, the water's 50 degrees, by the way. So when the water hits you, it like takes your breath away. So we'd go through a section and his response would be, breathe, breathe, breathe. I'm like, that's helpful, right? <laughs> breathe, breathe. Because he says uh, a lot of folks who do this trip for the first time hyperventilate on the boat when the water hits them. And that's not helpful because then he can't get, he says, then you won't row. You got to breathe so you can row. <laughs> got it, got it. So we turn this corner and there's a raft flipped upside down. And there's like three heads bobbing down the river. And there's some other, you know, look like their lunch and cooler and everything else going down the river. And, and this one woman was closest to us. She clearly looked in the most distressed. I would say she was in her mid-50s maybe. And she was just yelling, help, help. And she was kind of going through and the, the river was just bouncing her off of all these things. Help, help. And the guy says, we're going to go get her. And then the other two, there were some other rafts that were going to go get them. So we row over to him. And I'm not kidding. We, we row over to her. And this guy gets down and he grabs her by the life. Now, you know why this life jacket had to be on so tight? because he grabs by the life jacket and that's how he's going to get her in our raft and he has no idea how large this woman is let's just say she's beyond a normal size I'll leave it at that you guys following me here and he just grabs her and he just pushes her down and he uses the buoyancy of the water in one motion he thrusts her up on this uh, in our raft and she's just laying out across our raft in all human glory right there and she's like, thank you so much. Thank you so much. She was like freezing cold. And she's like, she's like, where's my husband? Where's my husband? And he's like, calm down. They got your husband over here. And he was like, we're like 15, 20 minutes into this trip. Can you picture now the environment of our <laughs> scenic float down the Arkansas River, Browns Canyon? We got her to where her husband was. We got the raft, helped them get, our guide was basically using them as a teaching element. He said to our boat, he said, by the way, everything you just witnessed right there, that's 180 degrees, the opposite of what I want you to do if you're to fall in. She was freaking out. She was panicking. She was, yeah, resisting all the instructions. Like, just don't do what she did if you go over. And I'm saying, well, we just want to go over. We're staying. We want to stay in, right? So, I don't know, maybe 
maybe a half hour into the float, I kept noticing behind our raft a guy by himself that appeared to me like the first time I noticed him, I thought he was just kind of swimming in a calmer section of the river. But every time I looked, he was still behind us. So I finally mustered up the courage to say to our guide, I said, hey, what's up with the guy behind us? Like half an hour into the float, we're going through some rapids like that. That's not a picture of our boat because obviously you aren't taking a camera on this trip, but that's a picture of the kind of experience we were having. And I'm like, this dude's going solo through stuff like that? What? So he, our guy turns around and he goes, oh, that's Riverman. He goes, no, Riverman. He says, ho, ho, ho. He tells our boat to slow up. Everybody put their oars in and slow up so Riverman can come up to our boat. He goes, that's Riverman. He's a legend. I go, really, a legend? So he comes up by our boat. He says, hey, everybody, this is Riverman. He's a legend. He does the Browns Canyon on a boogie board. And he's the only one I know that can do this and live to tell about it. That's what he told, Riverman, like laying there, and he's kind of just, all he, so you guys know what a boogie board is, right? This small little thing you do like usually in the waves of Florida, a boogie board. And he's got swim fins on and a wetsuit. And he's going through that. 10 miles, he followed us the whole way down. So our guide says to him, yo, Riverman, how you doing today? He kind of leans back into the current. He looks up at our raft and he goes, so good. So good. He's maybe, I would think, mid-50s, maybe early 60s. So good. The last set of rapids we hit was called Seven Step. I made the mistake of asking when we were entering in, why is it called Seven Step? He said, well, it's seven consecutive drops in the river. With each drop, it gets larger. And the last one, you'll know when it's the last one. I'm like... That was right, you know, he says, and then we're almost done. I thought, oh boy, seven steps. You remember that, honey? Seven steps. And we go down, we get through like step one, two, three, and we're soaked, and those were big, and it was happening, and I was counting in my head, three, that means we got four more, and each one gets larger. The last one, it literally, we went down into the swell, and there was an eight-foot wall of water straight up, and the raft is going straight through this eight-foot, that was step seven. Eight foot wall. The last thing I remember, I remember going down this way and thought, nah, that's it, you know, I was gonna see Jesus right here, you know what? <laughs> this is where we meet Jesus on the sabbatical. We're going down, the next time there's this wall of water just washes over, or takes your breath away and you come up out of it. Well, we, we come through that, we get to the part where we get out on the shore, we're unloading the raft. Guess who's still behind us? Riverman, the legend. He did that whole thing on the boogie board. So we're loading up the bus. I get on the bus. We're talking about the experience. We're laughing about some things. Guess who comes on our bus? Riverman, the legend. He evidently knows the driver and our crew so well. He, he said, I would, can you give me a ride home? So the bus driver's like, yeah, get in. Guess who comes and sits in the seat right behind me? Riverman, the legend. My wife looks at me and she goes, oh yeah, you're gonna do this, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I'm so doing this. I got to know this guy. I'm like, what's up with this guy, right? He's got a story that's going to be unbelievable. So I got like 20 minutes on this bus, and I'm like, Riverman, like they call you a legend. Yeah, you know, he's kind of pushing it off. He's pulling his flippers off at this point. Just, you know, that's all he's got. He's got his little boogie board and his flippers, and he just did that 10-mile set. 
And he said, hey, you know what? I grew up in Indiana. I go, what? And he goes, yeah, I dropped out of college. And I decided I was going to go teach you know, people how to ski. I was going to be a ski instructor out here in Colorado. So I loaded up my beater car with three boxes of whatever I owned, and I drove across. My parents absolutely didn't want me to do it. I did it anyway. I went out here to Colorado, and as I got into this area, I didn't meet the ski instructor people first. I met the river guide people first. And so the river guide people just kind of drafted him. He started helping guide. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, so here I am like 30 years later. I go, really? He goes, hey, but... It, it took me 22 years to get my bachelor's degree. Dead serious, he said. I go, no, it didn't. He goes, 22 years in seven schools, I got my bachelor's degree. <laughs> Where else can you have these kind of conversations? And then he says, yeah, but I just recently crossed over to the dark side. I go, what do you mean, dark side? He goes, ah, you know, I've been river guiding and doing all this stuff for like 30 years. He goes, I had to go get like a real job in an office. It's like the dark side. I had to like put my degree to use, you know, 22 years, I got that bachelor's degree, I got to put it to use. He's working on some like real estate office during the week, and then on weekends he does this. And we're getting towards the end, I, I could tell getting close to when he's going to get out, I said like, how does that really, how does that really work, you able to navigate that river like that? Like it, you made it look really easy, and he said this, he said, well, you got to stay in the flow of the current. And then he said, and don't lose your board. He goes, it's really bad if you lose your board. I'm like, that's a good point, right? He had no strap to the board himself. For some reason, it was just free form the board. The bus pulled over on this little gravel shoulder on the highway. Doors opened up. Driver yells, Riverman, it's your stop. Riverman collects his stuff, walks off the bus, walks down this gravel road. Evidently, that's home. He walked off. I don't think we should look to Riverman as some good guidance on higher education and journey of how we should handle. So students, you know, there's a better way to handle. You can do it a little more efficiently than Riverman did, 22 years, seven schools. But I do think there's some pretty sound theology. And this morning, I'd like to lobby for a little bit of river man in each of us. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter eight. Here's, here's Paul's way of saying what I think I heard from river man. Romans eight, verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? Underline this in your Bibles. The love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You gave us the gift of four months to be still and wait patiently for the Lord. And as the sediment began to settle across the four months, I come back to report to you that there is a raging river that flows through the canyon of our lives called God's love. And it is so strong and it is so steady and it's so consistent that if we will lean into that current and not resist that current, it'll get us where we need to be. 
Even if we hit stretches where we're like that one woman and the rafts flipped upside down and we're crying out, help, help. Here's the interesting thing about that woman. Guess where the river was taking her? Where it wanted to take her? She was at the mercy of the current. She might have been ricocheting off a few boulders along the way, but the current was getting her from point A to point B. It's Romans 8. I am convinced that nothing is going to be able to separate us. No, no angels, no demons, no life, no death, no anything else in all creation is going to be able to separate us from this raging river of the current of the love of God that is flowing. It's, it's Psalm 136. It's his love endures forever. It's river man theology that when we lean into it, we can join him and say, that's so good. <laughs> One of the experiences on the sabbatical, personally, kind of an alone experience, was my trip to Israel. We used some of the monies for me to go for 10 days. I'd never been to the Holy Land before. Very difficult to try to place into words how personally meaningful that was on so many levels, but I want to give you a window this morning into an experience that I think God used to help ground this first pillar of the sabbatical was, Simpson, I want you to see a little more clearly the height and breadth and depth of the raging river of my love for you. So in Israel, as you know, the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee are such a centering part of the experience over there. What I didn't realize was there's a place you can hike to in northern Israel, which our guide took us to the source of the Jordan River. Did you know there was such a place? I didn't know there was such a place. There's a picture here. The city of Dan, you guys know the scriptures well, the tribe of Dan. You know, it's Dan. He's, he's one of the sons of Jacob and Bilhah, one of Jacob's uh, maidservants. Dan is one of his sons. So the tribe of Dan began to grow. They eventually had a city of Dan. The city of Dan is the northernmost city in Israel. We hiked up to the city of Dan area where archaeologists have discovered some of the forts around Dan. And, and as we're hiking up there, we come to this, basically you need to picture a reservoir of water being thrust from the center of the earth. They have no explanation for exactly the, the volume and depth of the source of this spring coming up, the spring of Dan. And they said, our guide says, welcome to the source of the Jordan River. It's like, are you kidding me? I mean, I got, that's me, I, do you think I got a stone from there? Certainly got a stone from there. I got so many rocks from the trip at night back in my hotel room, I had to label which rock went to which place. Because I'm like, oh, was that source of the Jordan? Was that Caesarea Philippi? Was that, you know what I mean? You're like going back, I got all these rocks. I, I had so many rocks that when I was coming through security on the way home, the TSA guy in New York City, he pulls my bag aside. He's like, hey, whose bag's this? I go, that's me. He goes, you got rocks in here? I looked at him. I said, not just any rocks. He goes, what do you mean? I go, those rocks are from the Holy Land. I said, those are from Israel. His eyes got real big. He goes, you thought I was kidding. He goes, are you serious? He goes, yeah. He goes, those rocks in your bag 
came from Israel. I said, yes, yeah, specific sites. And one of the larger ones in there was from the Valley of Elah where David and Goliath's battle. We went down there into that valley and I took one of the five smooth stones. You can get smooth stones from the Valley of Elah. That's what David would have picked up. I said, hey, yeah, you know that biggest stone there you see on your radar screen? You know where that's from? Valley of Elah. He goes, uh-uh. I go, Valley of Elah, stones from the Valley of Elah. He, he's working the line. The whole line stopped now. He stopped the whole line. All these people are just like staring at him. He calls his other workers over, the TSA agents over. He's like, hey, you got to see this. Opens up the bag. He says, can we touch him? I said, push aside some of the clothing there and you can go ahead and. He's like, touches the rocks. He's like, these are really from the Valley of Elah. And he was going on and on. And then he closed up. He goes, you're good to go. We just like let it go through. I picked up a stone from the spring of Dan. The source of the Jordan. He kind of pictured that the color of that water there is a representation of so pure, clean, crisp, and then it flows down, forms the Jordan. The Jordan fills the Sea of Galilee. The sea of Galilee at its deepest point is 1,100 feet deep. So when we got down to the Jordan River, many of our team had been praying, I think, a couple of days before about, hey, I think, I think we'd like to get baptized in the Jordan. And there were three of, us, three of us pastors on the trip. I didn't know anybody on the trip. I joined another group. This is a group from New York City. They're from a couple of churches out in New York. And I got linked up with their guide through John Stumbo. He's like, hey, you need to go with this group. And so I, I kind of just fly out to New York. And I walk up to the gate. And I get to know all of them at the gate as we're going on the plane to Tel Aviv. And so I really didn't. I was kind of back of the bus guy. Just kind of staying out of the way. Which was just fine with me. Until we got to the time of baptism and they're like hey pastor Eric can we like pull you out of sabbatical mode and can you baptize a bunch of us down here in the Jordan of course I would be honored to do that so here's a picture of us we're down at the the Jordan we're probably 30 or so people got baptized there was 34 total on the trip and then towards the end of the baptisms I really sensed a leading from the Lord that uh I was supposed to get baptized I wasn't quite clear. 31 years ago, I was baptized, Community Heights Alliance Church, Newton, Iowa. I thought, Lord, really? I said, yeah, you need to get baptized here. So I asked Pastor Clay on my right there, Pastor Matt on my left. We were the three pastors there. And uh, I said, hey, Clay and Matt, I'd be honored if you would uh, you'd baptize me there in the Jordan. Someone snapped that pic there. So grateful they did. That kind of represents emotionally. When I came up out of the waters, Matt's, Matt says to me, uh, hey, Eric, uh, did you baptize me? It's an honor to. And then Clay says, uh, hey, Matt and Eric. <laughs> so in a sense, at the end, it was all three pastors, like, right? We could all three just got down together. We could have just all gone, but... It's all like baptizing each other and they're all the groups up there snapping pictures and we're crying and we're hugging and it was such a meaningful, personal, sweet experience, just soaking it all in. The Jordan's maybe only 20 yards wide in most of its points, so whatever you have a visual in your head, but the waters are definitely, there's kind of a, a greenish blue tint to the waters. You could see the source of the Jordan, how it would flow into that and It wasn't at that moment, but it's when I came home that the Lord brought Matthew 3.17 back. And 
I had some time with him one morning as the Lord's just basically saying, hey, Eric, you know what the baptism in the Jordan was all about? It was about the sediment settling in your life a little bit so you could see more clearly the height and breadth and depth of my love for you. And he said, do you remember what, remember, remember what I said to Jesus when he came up out of the waters? That's what the baptism in the Jordan was about for you. It's for you to seal this line in your soul. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. To seal that in your soul. Now there was no like, uh, you know, doves descending over me or anything like that in Matthew 3 for Jesus. But there was still that sweet and personal sense of God's affirmation of his love for me. Now, intellectually, like mentally, I've known God loves me, right? I mean, we know God loves us, but there was this, there was this deeper place that he wanted, he wanted to drill it a little bit deeper through this sabbatical. I see it a little more clearly. A Romans 8 kind of. Nothing's gonna separate you from this love. Simpson, you get this? And you guys know me well enough to know I got such a high achiever mode in me that my tendency is to port a performance-based relationship with God's love. As long as I'm performing well and achieving well and accomplishing things in his name that he's well pleased with, of course he loves me. And I kind of carry that around and just base my sense of experience of God's love based upon the kind of achievement accomplishments in his name. And he set me aside for four months and say, hey, let the settlement of activity and service in my name settle. You're not doing anything for me, and I want you to see this more clearly than you've ever seen it. Not based on what you do, but simply who you are in Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God, and because of that, my face is turned towards you in love. And nothing is going to separate that. No angels, nor demons, the present, nor the future, life or death, or anything else in all creation is going to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a raging river. It's a raging river that flows the current of our lives. And if we'll just... Lean into the current. Lean into that current. I think we can internalize a little bit of river man. That's so good. David Benner, I think I put this quote in your notes. David Benner wrote this. It says, when the thing about me that I most deeply know is that I am deeply loved by God. I have taken the first step toward a heart knowing of God. (laughs) It's God's love not based on my behavior. It's God's love based on his character. Do you see this? The Bible word for what I'm describing is unconditional. I'm quite skilled at conditional love. God has a PhD in unconditional love. That not based on my behavior, good or bad, my prayer life, good or bad, uh, 
my husband, father role, how I'm doing, good or bad, pastoral leadership stuff, good or bad, not based on good or bad of any of those things. There is a raging river of God's love that is going to flow towards me and carry me from point A to B, regardless of all of those realities. It's an unconditional love that God knows me, God sees me, God's with me, and God loves me. And that same holds true for all of you. God knows you. God sees you. God's with you. And God loves you. And there are seasons of our life, huh, we're gonna feel an awful lot. Like that woman whose raft's flipped over and is screaming out for help in the middle of the water. Because if we're honest, there are seasons of life we hit, right, that we don't, it doesn't feel very spring of Dan-like. It feels desert of Judah-like. You hit the desert seasons of life. You hit the, I'm not feeling the experiential love of God. I feel like my life's been flipped on its lid and I'm bouncing off of boulder seasons of life. What do we do in those moments? And I think I begin to see a little more clearly. Do you see that even in the desert and driest and darkest days and most difficult seasons of life, do you see those moments are perhaps an even deeper way to internalize this reality of the raging river of the love of God? Listen to how John Ortberg puts it. He, I came across this quote. I thought Ortberg said it better than I ever could. The desert can offer a unique opportunity to experience the depth of God's love. In the desert, you come to God and you haven't prayed well, or maybe at all. You've been battered by temptation, rocked by doubts, and feel you may be, even, may be more hindrance than help to whatever work God may be doing in the world. Yet even so, hear this now, so you hear the words, I still love you. I could not love you more than I do now. You are the object of my undying affection. You are the beloved. Do you see this, church? Do you see that huh, in seasons of our life when things are going reasonably well and we're kind of on it when we feel good about our relationship with God, we feel like we're on it in serving him, or we feel like we're on it at home, we feel like things are going reasonably well directionally where we want them to go. Do you see how the taste of the unconditional love of God isn't quite as sharp? It's not quite as... It's not brisk in the, in the tongue of the soul until when you hit what season? Until you hit the seasons of your life when you fall on your face into some kind of pattern of sin that you go, seriously, here I am again? Are you kidding me? Or you have a marriage that implodes or you say goodbye to a loved one you never wanted to say goodbye to or a job loss or a financial insecurity or a wayward child and you hit these places in your life where you feel dry, you feel distant, you feel dark, you feel like you're in this deep valley and in that moment the heavens open and the spirit of God descends that you are my son, you are my daughter, I love you and with you I'm well pleased. God knows you, God sees you, God's with you, God loves you. And in that moment and that season, do you see the height and the breadth and the depth of what the Bible calls unconditional love? A love that's not tied to anything you or I do or don't do. A love that says, I'm coming for you. 
whether you're bouncing off a boulder down that river or not, that current is not going to stop flowing, and I'm going to get you from point A to B. You may be banged up, you may be bruised, but by God's grace, you're going to lean into that current, and you're going to join River Man, and you're going to be able to sing a song of praise that has a chorus that says something like, that's so good. Last story, and then I'll pray. A few days, um, a few days after, I think it was my baptism in the Jordan, we were at the Sea of Galilee. We took a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. I don't know what you have in your head as an image of the Sea of Galilee. In my head, I had it as much smaller than it is. It's a very large body of water. So in your head, just think really big body of water. So here's a picture of the bow of the boat at the Sea of Galilee. I was just, we were just out. There was a captain of the ship, and he was kind of taking us out on some sights. And I just kind of made my way out to the bow of the boat by myself, and I was just soaking in the sights. And it was a beautiful kind of late afternoon, early evening. I was just thinking about all the times Jesus had with his disciples on that water. I thought about Peter sinking and I thought about Jesus coming up in the storm and standing up and saying, be still. And I just pictured the thunderstorms that could roll through this valley and just kind of going through all that. And I had my cell phone in my pocket and uh, it went off and it was Kendra sending me a text message. She was keeping me updated about Bob Sterling and she said, hey, honey, I just want to let you know Bob just passed away. I was standing right there, right there. I was looking out over those waters. It was such a personal moment there. The rest of the group had no idea what's going on. There's all the stuff going on. There's me and the Lord and that. I wrote in your notes a prayer that I think best expresses what's going on in my heart. This is a prayer by Ted Loder. O God of endings, you promise to be with me always, even to the end of time. Move with me now in these occasions of last things, of shivering vulnerabilities and letting go, letting go of parents gone, past gone, friends going, old self growing, letting go of children grown, needs outgrown, illusions overgrown, letting go of swollen grudges and shrunken loves. Be with me in the end of things. In silence, Lord, I feel now the curious blend of grief and gladness in me. And I listen for your leading to help me faithfully move on through the fear of my time to let go so the timeless may take hold of me. And Tanya and Austin and Mackenzie and Luke Cheyenne, as a body, we just want you to know how much we love you how great of an impact Bob had on this congregation and his leadership and all the lives that he touched. And 
I know it was a huge step for you guys to cross back through the doors today. Today's kind of their first Sunday back in from Bob's passing. Can you imagine the emotion that kind of carries, right, when you, and they have the chair, appropriately so, I think with Bob's Bible sitting on the chair where I have always known Bob to be, and arms extended. I thought about how much he loved the song, and what a beautiful name, and he loved the cross, and And uh, we just want you to know as a body, we're committed to walk with you through every chapter of this. And some of my personal dialogue with the Lord on the journey with Bob is I said, Lord, why did you orchestrate it in such a way that I'm on sabbatical in the midst of a time when I just so wanted to be with such a good friend and a family that I love so much? Why would you put me on the other side of the planet? And I think so. Some of it had to do with all that stuff I was talking to you about there at the beginning with love. And, and you're gonna hear more about in the weeks ahead how God used the experience of Bob's passing in the midst of sabbatical to help me see some other things a little more clearly. But this morning it was about Right, leaning into the river of, of his love in the ending of things and in the grand mysteries. The Psalm 37, seven says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for me. I even think the White River got slightly clearer in the last 35 minutes or so, didn't it? And I'm so grateful to be back to report to you that by his grace, God let some sediment settle that I could let you know I'm seeing things a little more clearly maybe than I've seen before. I'm seeing a Romans 8 raging river of love that's flowing. And I'm convinced that nothing can separate us. Life nor death, angels nor demons, present or the future, nothing's gonna separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a, it's a Psalm 136, that love endures forever. And it's the kind of love that's gonna carry us through. Even we can't figure out how we're gonna get to the next section of the river, this current of this love will get us where we need to be. But I think we're all gonna need a little bit of river man in us. Will we lean into the current? Remember he said, he said Eric, don't, don't fight the current. Don't fight it. Just lean, go with the current. Don't lose your board. Go with the current. I was like, I was thinking, don't worry, river man. I ain't getting on that board. I ain't doing that. But lean into the current. Don't lose your board. And I couldn't help but think, when Bob took his last breath in this life and took his first breath in last life, you gotta be telling me somewhere in the chorus of the song that came out of Bob Sterling's soul was a little bit of river man that's so good. 
and we hold on to that. And the Bible says, that, my friends, is a love like none other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth that you ground so clearly through your word, and thank you for the personal experiences of the last four months where you helped me have a front row seat afresh and anew to the height and breadth and depth of your unconditional love in every season of life. As a body, we unite our hearts and and we pray, we continue to pray for the Sterling family and others in this body who are going through the passageways. They're, They're saying some goodbyes that they never wanted to say, never imagined they'd have to say. Jesus, carry them along, literally hour by hour. Grant to them by your spirit exactly what they need. Psalm 46, one, God's a refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of need. May they experience that. And Father, for others who may be strolling this morning and are walking through some realities that they would put in the category of never imagined staring at that one, their own personal losses and endings and whatever mysteries. And then there's a whole host of the rest of us in here that are kind of riding another fresh wave of just kind of basking in a display of your unbelievable goodness and care for us. They're all seasons, right? We, we navigate mountaintops and valleys and all the plateaus in between. And this morning, we just kind of collectively lean in now. I just want to encourage you, just kind of lean in to the current of the raging river of God's love. That he knows you. He sees you. He's with you. And he loves you. In Jesus' holy name.